New Photic Realm announcement. Uh, submission windows for upcoming issues. Issue 10, the theme is justice. That's hard-boiled fiction with a supernatural twist. The deadline for that will be April 1st, 2020. Issue 11, the theme is kaiju. Giant monsters terrorizing civilization. Deadline will be October 1st, 2020 for those stories. Issue 12, the theme is lycanthropy, which is, of course, self-explanatory. Um, it can be any type of animorph with a bloody twist. Uh, so I guess that's werewolves and Jesus, giant, I don't know. What do people turn into? Seals? I've just got a little seal on my desk, so I thought of that. I don't know. You have to be more imaginative than I just was. Uh, but the deadline for lycanthropy, January 1st, 2021. Good luck to everyone submitting. I wrote this thing. I hope you like it. Let's talk about it, yeah. Let's lose track. Losing the plot podcast. Losing the plot podcast. Losing the plot podcast. Talking to Leo I'm very excited to present to you my guest this episode. It's author Matthew Stoko, uh, most famously the author of Cows, but also the novels High Life, Empty Mile, and Colony of Whores. I recommend them all. Um, but I've been a huge fan of his, and uh, in particular of Cows, for years. And uh, I was very excited to get the chance to talk to him. And uh, we covered so many different things that I've always wanted to ask him. So I hope that you enjoy this chat as much as I enjoyed having it. Um, if you are, uh, you know, somebody who wants to be on the show, or if you want to tell me something about the show, you can always get in touch with me using losingthepodcast at gmail.com. And I look forward to hearing from you as always. Uh, but that's all the intro chat uh, from me for now. So here is my chat with author Matthew Stoko. It didn't impact on me much because uh, I've been pretty lucky um, with the sort of impacts of this stuff. But now it's really pissing me off. Not being able to go anywhere, you know, get out of the local area. or you know, We're not even really allowed to go sit in the park now. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's starting to really bite. Wow. Yeah, I mean, um, as, as writers, it's just like, okay, you want me to do what I was already doing most of the time? <laughs> I can keep doing that. <laughs> first yeah i mean look that's cool if you're doing that you know i, I work mm -hmm. full time too and um it, it it's it's it, i've i've realized that working at home you know doing a day job at home while it's wonderful mm -hmm. not have to go to go into an office and mix with people you don't want to mix with ordinarily it, they, it, it pollutes your your creative environment you know you sit down at your desk and you think oh fuck this is the same place i already sat at for seven hours today so <clears throat> yeah you're right no i mean I, I i have a a day job myself and um yeah now it's a lot of uh and i'm just doing a lot of skype meetings and stuff but that's kind of i don't yeah it's nice not to have to go to lunch with <laughs> people in the office. Yeah, yeah. It, look, I mean, it's great. I, 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 
I work for quite a long time, like remotely, you know, part time, like three days a week, and um, for a year, not too long ago, and that was a really good mix, you know, doing it five days a week. Though I can probably, I, I think maybe going into the office one day a week is is enough, you know, to break the monotony or something. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Right, man. So, so Norway, huh? Cool. All right. What are you doing in Norway? <laughs> Uh, I'm an engineer here, so I, I I studied in the UK where I'm from, but then I uh, got a job offer here, so I was like, nice. I'd never been to Norway, um, and then I basically, when I showed up here for work, was the first time I'd kind of been yeah. here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it must be cool. Yeah. Well, is it nice? It is. It's very nice. Um, yeah, people are super friendly. The working conditions are relaxed. Um, yeah, I enjoy it a lot. Have you have you been to Scandinavia before? No, no, I haven't. No, no. I not at all. No, no, no. I've I've been to Amsterdam and Paris. <laughs> that's, that's as much as I did back back in the days when I was living in the UK, and I probably could have travelled. I was so shit poor that um, uh, it was kind of before everybody got a lot more empowered and had a lot more disposable income. So. Um, I didn't do much traveling, so no. Do they have a ma- you know massive um like really super great social provision in Norway, like um Sweden and that lot? Yes, yes, they do. You know, they do the ridiculous tax thing, but they mm. look after everyone. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a nice system. Yeah, not belittling anybody's experience, but looking from what I see from you know this this sort of golden lucky land of Australia, where we've you know, we've been lucky over here with the amount of um, infection and the amount of deaths. <clears throat> we've had them, but they're no, nowhere near what other people have um, suffered. And it's largely due, I suppose, to the fact that we're an island, an enormous island, but we're still an island. And we were able to learn, I guess, a bit from the countries that kicked off a little earlier. Um, mm-hmm. But also because we have... You know, we came from the British model um, of social provision that grew out of the beverage report after the World War II. And um, we have that social provision, uh, so does New Zealand, to probably a bit of a lesser extent. And it, it's provided, you know, a reasonable cushion. But you look at the US and, you know, a lot of people don't even have unemployment benefit and they don't have health benefit. And it's like, uh, I think now it's it's like... I hope that in America they're waking up a little bit and going, you know what, a little bit of social provision, a little bit of benevolent welfare by the state is not a bad thing. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we better start the interview, dude. I'll rant all night. That's well, my, my podcast is called Losing the Plot because you're allowed to talk about whatever you yeah. feel like. <laughs> so, yeah. So don't worry about it. This is the this is the podcast essentially. Oh. Of course, I've got yeah, I've got um a ton of questions for you. But whatever you feel like talking about is is the most interesting. Um, are you glad? I suppose not to be in America right now. Yeah, I uh, yeah. look. I mean, I I have talked about this before, but um, <clears throat> I'll give a quick pricey of it now just to give you some context to you know my answer to that question. Uh, so I spent a bit of time in America in, in the early 90s, and I loved it. I just thought it was, you know, and I've always desired to go there. So my my acerbic comments about America a moment ago uh, have to be tempered with, you know, my absolute 
sort of obsession with the Californian Hollywood kind of thing too. So there's an awful lot that's you know cool about America as well. Um, mm-hmm. And I went over there and I loved it. I you know I just thought it was like stepping into a movie. But I I went to California um, just about <clears throat> two years ago. I fucking hated LA, and um, I was really quite upset by it because. Uh, I'd loved it so much before, and it was sort of this shattering of illusions. I loved California. I traveled all through California um, both times. And uh, honestly, God, what a just spectacular beauty. You can see why Americans are so American-centric. You know, Americans often sort of surprise me by their lack of under their lack of awareness of the rest of the world. And I understood it though when I went to America because Everything there is so grand. The buildings are so huge, but the landscape is just so overpoweringly um, magnificent, at least in California and the parts that I've seen anyway, and I'm sure it is in other parts of America. Um, anyway, so I'm, I'm glad I'm not in America for you know, quite a whole number of reasons. One is because I think it's going to be a shit show over there. Um, I think that, the you know, their deaths are are still going to increase and increase and increase, sadly. But I also think the economic situation is going to to be really pretty bad. And I have to wonder what's going to, what, you know, how this will shake out. This, this, you know, there's numerous camps, I suppose, at the moment. And one of them is that, oh, well, it's like, you know, this dawning of the age of Aquarius kind of like the seventies reborn again, that we'll all come together and we're going to, we're going to change all of this. And this is this big cataclysmic experience that society has gone through and we're not going to accept um, this, you know, the, the society and the, the, the corporation control and the government control that we had before <clears throat> that that's you know that's a very rosy sort of um outlook or hope and the other the other side of that though is that um things could get very 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 bad because what you have already and this is no surprise to anybody won't be surprised to you you know massive concentration of wealth in a super super small percentage of the population so what this is going to do is is basically just rape all the lower classes even more so they're going to come out of this um having lost all their savings having lost their mortgages um having lost their homes you know in in some cases having lost members of their family but uh, from an economic point of view, I, I think that there's a potential. I, I have no idea what will happen, right? And I'm not even going to you know, try and uh, pontificate or prognosticate about that. But mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the outcomes of this is that you have an even more disenfranchised and even more um, economically ruined um, lower class, to use that term, and if you mm-hmm. if you if you get that and you exacerbate this, the problems that we already had before COVID, then you know I think you're looking at you're obviously going to look at more problems. In Australia, we're so sunny and you know happy and comfortable, <laughs> non-politically mm-hmm. motivated. It's it's not an issue. I mean, there'll never be a revolution in Australia. It's just impossible. Yeah, and and in in Norway and Sweden and. <clears throat> the European, some of the European companies, countries, um, mm-hmm. that that won't happen either because you're, you know, that you have those provisions and the state looks after people. But in countries like Germany and France, 
the UK and possibly the US, then you know you you have a significant danger of of um, a lot of social unrest maybe after this. Who knows? Mm. It'll be interesting to see. It'll be really interesting to see how it shakes out. It, it's funny. I was reading about um, uh, UFOs, and it's interesting to see that the absolute um, sort of prevalence of UFO and um, um, the and, and things about the universe on social media now has been a rise. So there was a, apparently there was a spike in UFO sightings around the beginning of the Cold War when everybody was freaking out and getting really paranoid and started seeing all these UFOs. And it, it struck me recently that, oh, you know, that, that same sort of thing's happening now because there's been a whole shit ton of UFO stuff on social media, and but, but more in the sense of, um, but also in addition to that, um, oh, you know, we're now thinking this about the universe and we've just found out that antimatter is not antimatter and oh my God, and we found this big hole, black hole that's not a black hole and it's just like, what the fuck is it? And so like, mm. ah, that's interesting. So that's happening now as well when everybody is super stressed out about COVID. So, um, oh. Forgot where I was going with that. I'm sure it was <laughs> brilliant. It was brilliant. I've got <laughs> so many questions. <laughs> so many questions for you after that. You... You seem anyway, like the ideal look, guest for the show. If you can, if you can throw me a lifeline on that one, and uh, to, to, to <laughs> it was great. <laughs> I wanted to just sit back and hear you go for the full hour. That was fantastic. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, it's so many interesting things. I mean, I'll take it in, in order, I suppose. Like the, I have a lot more sympathy now for people who are interested in conspiracy theories because it's like, how. You, we have this desire to to really understand what's going on in the world and very little ability to to I don't know trust the sources that are giving us information um, to know one another. Like we're really I feel like once everything became so connected, it also exposed how little we know about each other and about the world. And it, I, I totally understand why that's so overwhelming to some people because we do need to I don't know anchor ourselves somehow in the world oh yeah for sure yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, and i mean there was a point when you know because I, whether i'm lucky or you know uh, some millennials may say not but i've lived through pre-internet and you know witnessed the move into into internet and witnessed where we are today and i think that's kind of cool i mean yeah I certainly like to be 20 years younger but it, it was it was interesting, you know, seeing the world in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and seeing the move from when, when nobody had smartphones and you needed to make a phone call. Well, fuck, you know, you had to go out and use a phone, a phone box. And if you were going to be late somewhere, well, you were late. And, you know, the people waiting for you just waited for you or they, or they fucked off and went and did what they were going to do. You couldn't just text somebody. And, um, and, as the as I you know saw this because I've been lucky enough to be exposed to the you know computers just in you know the shitty jobs that I do and all that so I've been reasonably um, aware um, and there was a point when I thought well you know everybody was freaking out about ebooks and everybody was freaking out about kids spending hours on social media and all that and I thought and I started to see like you know in in some younger people that I knew, it's like, oh, they have these massive connections um, all around that they actually do leverage in the real world. And I thought, oh, yeah, you know, okay, the, this this sort of internet thing that's, 
touted as this monster and it's going to dehumanize us all. It's actually working the other way. Ebooks never destroyed publishing. In fact, they just made more people read books. And um, social media allowed all the social media, you know, the digital natives um, to form connections via social media that they then leveraged in real world. That was my, you know, that was how I saw things at, at one point. That was a few years ago. Now I wonder, mm-hmm. just looking at the fucking stream of garbage that Facebook is and all the other <laughs> social media things. I mean, it's just like opening a portal and somebody taking an enormous shit on you. I mean, I, mm. you know, I just don't see it as helpful. I certainly see it as very, very um, antagonistic towards creativity. I think that the... The, the the sheer just the, the the scrolling the mechanics of the scrolling through a smartphone with the frontal lobe you know firing nonstop and the visual parts of your brain just firing nonstop I think that's really dangerous I think I think it promotes a state in the brain that's like that's just completely antagonistic towards creativity and deeper thought mm. um, so now. Um, my my view of this is, and while I have benefited, you know, greatly from the from the internet, um, and have you know some good friends that I've made through social media that became friends in the real world, um, I'm a lot more cautious now about being optimistic um, about this whole. Well, you're talking. This all started because you're talking about um, connection. And mm-hmm. and I wonder at the at the at the at the depth of the connection that we make on social media. Obviously, some mm. of it, as I've just said, gets leveraged into some real world connections, but a lot of it is just so I don't know shallow and banal that. Uh, you know, people turn mm. to social media now and yeah, okay, it's very reassuring, but it's, it's you know, it's that whole, you know, what is it, that Marxian thing, opiate of the masses, and that was about religion, then somebody co-opted it for TV, but now it's social media. Mm. Um, something that I see, that, that I was interested to ask you about in particular, actually, um, I, it seems to me that the, the public shaming thing is ramping up and it's becoming more and more... Uh, it's like there constantly needs to be a new scapegoat and the reasons for picking those are becoming like the the threshold for the transgression required is is really minimal it's like six years ago Mm. one woman it was like six years ago she used the n-word in a private message she sent to somebody and then she had to apologize and then she uh she was she was like hospitalized for depression because of the yeah. onslaught of messages against yeah. her because of this yeah. thing she did six years ago. Um, and my point was like I just I recently read uh, the Sluts by Dennis Cooper, which I oh, yeah. you've, you know, I haven't like, read it, but um, yeah, I know Dennis Cooper. Yeah. Okay, yeah, no, I, I mean I thought it was brilliant, but then I thought n- nobody's ever going to try and cancel Dennis Cooper, right? It's, so how is it that um. How is it that we're all supposed to agree on the language that we can and cannot use, and yet some people quite flagrantly break the the apparent rules of what language you're allowed to use, mm. and will never get harangued for it? It's just a, a, an interesting paradox. It it is. Perhaps it's perhaps it's the arena. I mean, when I say I know Dennis, I know of him, and he's written blurbs for me. I've never met him, um, and and I know. 
you know, just peripherally, the the sort of furor his his blog causes um, every so often. Um, I just wonder whether it's the arena that allows people to get away with this. I mean, when you you can do certain things within the context of art that maybe you can't do within the context of just you know, normal conversation. But I I hear what you're saying about you know the insanity of um, shaming people and just going at people for these offhand comments. And that that's you know they call they call social media the echo chamber i mean that's what fucking happens you know you make a comment it bounces off and bounces off it grows and grows and grows and then people you know people's attacks on you do the same thing perhaps don't know mm-hmm. no i mean neither but it seems like the people who it seems like the the biggest targets are the ones who hang out in these groups that are so against uh uh, of societal progress, like then the the scrutiny <clears throat> that they're under just becomes really intense. I don't understand how you know. Mm. My point is like you, you could for an offhand comment you made six years ago, and that you're the author of cows. Like uh. you're never going to get no no nobody's ever going to pull you up for that. You're quite aware of what you were doing there, for example, or you know any of your books really. Well, you know, yeah, like no, nobody's I mean, ever look going at, to shame you for your work, you know? Yeah, 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 okay. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a different thing. Um, but, okay, so careful in, 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 in my work, um, because while in the period that I was writing, um, you know, the early book, there, there was um, quite a bit of focus on on women and the women women's role in, in art and as characters in narrative fiction. And it doesn't it doesn't single out any racial minority. It doesn't uh, I know women uh, you know uh, suffer some rather nasty um uh, things in it, but they're not they're not they're not belittled in fact i was funny i was i i when i said i thought about this i i you know i thought about it in the sense you know as a background thought and i i realized quite a long time later that a lot of the women in my books have like actually really are uh, really quite strong women so i think there was a part of me that was like I, well, I wasn't interested, actually, anyway, in in belittling, you know, other races or other sexes or other gender identifications or anything like that. And so, mm-hmm. my my stuff when you cite cows, I mean, it's really, yeah, I, I I see what you're saying. And believe me, I if you are if you go and read some of the reviews on Amazon about cows, there, there's plenty of people who who got upset about it. Um, <laughs> I I have been lucky in that. Um, probably what you're referencing is the the general, you know, leitmotif of the of criticism of cows is by and large um, positive um, and does see it for what it was supposed to be. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, 
it would be very different. I mean, because, you know, there was even that, uh, what was it? What was it? American something or other, something with America. You know, these Americans love putting American in the title. But um, uh, <laughs> the, the woman who wrote the book about the um, Mexican immigrants, American Dirt. And so, yeah. <clears throat> you know, she's been vilified because she wrote a story um, I don't know. I haven't even read the book, but as as the little snippets of publicity I've seen that 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 tells the story from a, a Mexican illegal immigrant's point of view. Well, you know, and there's probably not even the word "fuck" in that book, from the sound of the type of book it is. So, and mm. she's got it in the neck. I'm, you know, I my stuff has been around for a long time, and it and it's grown with the internet. Um, the publishers for pretty much all of my books did nothing with my books. They just published them and dropped them down a black hole. Um, it's only been with the internet and word of mouth that my books have grown. And so I think that they're there and people just take them and they just go, well, this guy's a fucking maniac or this guy is, you know, a great writer or, or anything in between. And, mm. and I, I I don't, I'm not prey to that. And just like, I don't give a fuck anyway. It, it, all I have to do to avoid that stuff is not open Facebook or not, not open Amazon, not look at my reviews on Amazon, which I don't do anyway. So now, so, you know, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Fair. Uh, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Fair. Hey, no, it's question. You, you raise a very interesting, <laughs> no, you raise a very interesting point and it's something that I, uh, yeah, it's something that I was thinking as well. This American Dirt example is like the more you try to say that what you're doing is in the name of progress, the angrier it makes people. Therefore, <laughs> because I think, you know, you, you're you not making those claims to be, I don't know, promoting some sort of uh, beneficial social message, then you're not under that scrutiny. Maybe that's what the criteria is. I don't know that there is one, but mm. like that. Um but no, Tough. yes. So let's. Uh, I've got loads of questions. For, I actually have formal questions for you as well. Um, but <laughs> I want to talk about your books in. We'll talk about them in reverse order. So we can start with Colony of Horrors, which is the latest one. Um, sure. It's. I I I think it, it it had the most immediate impact for me. This one, like the first opening few chapters, I was like. Well, I need to know everything that's going on here. This is the most bizarre story I've ever <laughs> encountered. It, it's how did, I, I know this is a difficult question. How how did you come up with the idea? What what inspired it? Um, well, I mean, coming up with a story ideas um, at certain points in time has been very difficult. And um, you know, I've said before, I think that. You know, I can spend years trying to come up with a story. Um, and so my books have taken a long time. Colony of Horse wasn't quite like that. Colony of Horse started out to be a very, very, very different story indeed. I read about telomerase, which is um, a chemical or a compound that stops the telomeres in your DNA fraying. And um, so has been touted or, you know, talked about as an anti-aging drug. And I wanted to start doing something like that. But, um, you know, this I can't even connect that to the, the story that Colony of Halls became. Um, but that was, they, they were my first few notes on it. And I, and I spent, you know, a couple of months, you know, writing notes around a story like that. And it was going to be quite bizarre. 
Um, <clears throat> but I, you know, like I've always been, uh, since, you know, my mid twenties, I've been obsessed with the movie industry in, in, in California. And, um, mm -hmm. um, so, and of course, High Life, you know, was set in that. And I, I mean, Colony Force was, with each of the books, they've become more technically advanced from my point of view anyway. And mm -hmm. um, Colony of Whores was the first book where I took a sort of multi-character viewpoint. Um, everything else, all the other, the other three books were from a single viewpoint generally. Yeah. And I, I wanted, I guess, you know, you don't think of these things consciously when you're doing it, but I wanted to test myself, um, uh, uh, test my skills as a novelist and see if I could actually control this kind of, you know, this this hydra, this octopus kind of thing and and tell a story. But what you asked, though, is, okay, so where, how did I, you know, come up with that story um, in Hollywood? Well, I'd, I'd wanted to... Um, write a book about an incestuous, a consensual incestuous love story. And Colony, of course, had in its, uh, you know, its earlier generations had a little bit more um, of the father-daughter incest, consensual adult um, incestual relationship initiated by mm -hmm. the daughter. Um, and You know, you, you talk to you talk to publishers and talk to publishing directors, et cetera, et cetera. Not that I have a lot of um, you know contact with these people at all, but there was a you know there was a sense like oh oh yeah, it's a really cool story. It's really complex, really clever, blah blah blah. But oh god, the incest. And, oh, I, don't like, <laughs> I, I really want to like that guy Denning, but I just can't. And I'm thinking, oh fuck mm. me, you know. So so I shaved a bit off that. And and I and I'll just mention here though, the the hypocrisy of the of the of the publishing industry of, of agents and publishers, in this respect, because Virginia Andrews, who wrote, uh, well, Flowers in the Attic, yeah. right, has has a brother and sister, um, underage I think, or at least a very borderline age, forced incest, basically rape, mm -hmm. in it through which they bear a child. Hmm. How many books did she sell? Oh, 30 million. All right. So she sold 30 mm. million fucking copies. And yet when you when you when you mention incest, it's um to anybody it's like, ah, uh, it's like, you know, it's almost the 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 final taboo, you know, N-word and incest. You can't go yeah. there. Anyway, so I wanted to write <laughs> um I wanted to write a story about that. And I and I I really wanted the story to be about that. But as I was writing, and uh, because of the multi-character viewpoint, it kind of spiraled off from that. And um, and I really became enamored of um, the character Chick and motorbikes and, um, you know, and the, the corruption in Hollywood. And, and, and again, I guess, you know, you can read more into these books than I was consciously perceiving at that time, because there's a lot about sexual dynamics in it as well, and, and rape and the exploitation of women. And there's a lot about uh, love and 
again, because there is the Denning <clears throat> and his daughter, Petta, and, and then there's also the non, well, you don't really know, but it's, it's non-sexual in the book, um, relationship between Jeffrey and Ali, who have been abused by the grandfather, sexually abused by the grandfather, and the fallout from that, and how that, you know, ruined their lives. So I, I think even though, you know, after Cows and High Life, I've, I've tried to just uh, tread some, some newer ground um, sexually. Um, looking at Colleen of Whores, there's, a, there's an awful lot of, of, of looking at the consequences of actions in a kind of sexual arena. Denning is, is you know, quite ruined by his affair with his daughter. Um, his daughter wants to forget it ever happened. He, you know, he knows that his relationship with his daughter will never ever be, even if, even after they stop having um, sex, you know, his relationship will never be healed with his daughter. And Jeffrey and Ali have been abused by their grandfather, are just complete psychotic nuts, you know, and, and for me, they were one of the most poignant parts of the book because they'd been destroyed by the actions of somebody else and they became you know, destroyed. They became destroyers or Jeffrey became a destroyer himself. So I don't mm. know. It's, you know, I, have, I, I think that a lot of writing comes from the unconscious and, and in a sense, writing a novel it's you know it's a cliche maybe but you you're exploring you know you're exploring parts it's like therapy where did it come from i i don't know you know i i don't know i always start <laughs> i always start a book with like an intention and, and a theme i think it's very important to have a theme and uh, because it helps you as you write when you you know when you're adrift on those stormy seas of a, of a novel and lost yeah. and and this is one thing to, to try and hold on to and it's you know it's nothing super defined it's broad it might be honor it might be love it might be you know it might be uh, it might be might be oh i want to say something about hollywood blah 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 um, so I would have, you know, I had that, um, and started writing and, you know, you, I mean, for instance, high life, I wanted to write something I just seen basic instinct and I, and I'd been to California and I wanted to, to, I thought, okay, you know, nobody was going to publish cows at that point. It hadn't been published. I was like, what am I going to do? I, uh, that's so slick. Joe Esterhaus script is so fucking great. I love that movie. So boom, why don't I write a book like that? So I sit down and start writing highlight for a course. Turns out to be nothing like, you know, anything like a fucking basic instinct. Mm -hmm. um, and that that's always the way with books. You you have this intention and you think it'll go one way. Yeah. And and other things bubble up and, and they take it over. And the, the thing I remember most, I think, about writing Colony was that the hijacking of the of the desire to write um, an incestuous love story um, became hijacked by this super plot-driven story. Um, and there wasn't really anything I could do about it. It just, you know, it just, it just, it just was what it was. It became what it was. Mm. Um, I, I think that I, I totally agree that these books are expanding in complexity. I don't suppose that you, um, 
I don't know, because there is, I suppose, controversial material in all of the books, there is some sort of desire to demonstrate technical skill to show that, like, to, to yeah. legitimize <laughs> that, the controversy. That, that, <laughs> I, I think, well, only another writer would probably ask that um, uh, or even see it. Um, I, um, You're totally right there. Um, after Cows and High Life, given that each one of those books took five years to get published after I'd finished writing them, and I was, mm -hmm. you know, and so consequently that meant that I was, like, constantly questioning what I should write, Um because there's no reinforcement, you know, you write a book and if it doesn't, if you don't get something back from it, if you don't get some measure of success from it, um, whatever that, you know, you class as success, then you start questioning how should I do the same thing again? You know, mm. um, there was a story that I had to tell that was empty mile. And because at that point, cows and high life hadn't become what they've become today, um, I, you know, made a decision that, okay, I'll write a book. It's going to be dark. It's, you know, it'll be me, but it just won't have as much overt violence and um, sexual deviance in it. And I wrote Empty Mile. And just, you know, it was a very tough book to write because it's the most autobiographical of my books. It took a long time to write. And, um, but at the end, you know, what you're saying is say, you know, yeah, is there, I think what you're saying is say, am I trying to prove that I'm not just this guy who writes, you know, really horrible violence and sex? Yeah. And I'm sure there was, it was a super personal story to me that it was a, it was a lot about my background and a lot about, um, you know, people in my family and, and, and the stuff that I'd done and regretted doing. Um, but there was also this, I think, this thing in me that was, you know, that wanted to say, well, okay, let's see if you can write a book that, that, that doesn't, you know, um, depend or doesn't, doesn't, you know, motor along on, on sex and violence. What it meant was for people who would ordinarily have criticised me as a writer for High Life and Cows. And honestly, my experience is that most people haven't criticized me for it. Um, mm. uh, you know, um, but, but for the people who that wanted to do that, then there was, you know, it was that. But, you know, geez, it was problematic when it came out. It was like, you know, all the people that liked High Life didn't like Empty Mile. All the people that would have loved Empty Mile didn't read Empty Mile because they knew Matthew Stoker wrote High Life and Cows. Um, so mm. it took, you know, it took a long time to, I suppose, reach people, but, um, yeah, so definitely there's, you know, there's definitely this element of, of wanting to test yourself as a novelist and expand and see what you can do and handle more mm. complex. Stories. Yeah. I see your point. So the challenge was that with that one was to keep it reasonably clean, I suppose. It does seem like your most accessible work yeah. um and it's it's dedicated to your son yeah which i thought was interesting yeah. um and did he influence the book somehow uh yeah. it's really okay 
I'll drop this little Easter egg in, in there and it will mean nothing to anybody. But the surname is the key to that story. Um, and that would take an awful lot of digging for any Stoko aficionados, but the surname of the character <laughs> is key to that story. And yes, um, my son and my brother um, were a huge part of that book, but that's all I can really say about that. Fair enough. Um, so let me see. I still have a little more to ask about. I, I like that we're jumping around, and please no, good. We can continue yeah, go to do that. To yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I had a few, a few more things to ask about Colony of Horrors. Um, is it somehow, do you see it as somehow a response to High Life? Oh. <clears throat> a response, a response, a continuation. Um, uh, no, I think, I think in a sense it, it, it travels the same ground in the sense that it's a critique of Hollywood and a critique of mm -hmm. the... Whereas High Life is a critique of fame and wanting to be famous. Um, I'd, I, I, you know, I'd have to really think a lot about Colony of Horse because there's a lot in it. And I, I wanted to, you know, for me being, you know, coming from a, a British background, um, I, you know, I do see the world as, as, um, I see corporations as a big, I mean, you don't have to be British for this, but, you know, we have a sort of anti-authoritarian kind of, um, viewpoint in some respects. Um, and I guess Australians do too. Um, I, you know, I see the, the really powerful bodies in society, whether they're corporations, movie companies, whatever, as inherently vulnerable to corruption and um, uh, sort of, I don't know, damaging um, the smaller player in society. And so <sighs> colony is that, but as, you know, as we touched on beforehand, it, it's also about um, sexual dynamics as well. And the damage that's mm -hmm. done to people through that, um, yeah, you know, I don't know, man. I, I, it's funny. I, I have to think a lot about Colony to to really figure out what where I was going with that. I mean, on the surface, it is a pretty a critique of just evil corporate, you know, power, written mm -hmm. small in in the form of a of a a, a film production company. Um, mm -hmm. and in the industry itself, yeah. Mm. Well, I think that what uh, what allows for for the content of these books is the fact that you are compassionate towards these people and that you do extensively highlight the way in which <laughs> cultural forces are making their lives the way that they are. Yeah, I, you know, I... Always for me being able to write characters demands that there's a, a, a as you say an, el an element of compassion or love for them even the most heinous of characters one of one of my favorite mm -hmm. characters you know 
my most favorite characters in these books are the, the most damaged ones. My favorite character in High Life is Ryan, the cop, and the, my favorite characters in Colony are Denning and, and Jeffrey, the completely fucked up, you know, kid who goes and murders people and then his sister has to sort of engineer his death as well because he's so fucked up. And these are the people that interest me the most. And the only way that you can, you can't write these guys and these women if you're... Um, if you just think they're assholes and, and monsters, because everybody, you know, I, it's, you know, that, it's a huge question, you know, are, are monsters born or are they, are they made? I guess in my books, I, my viewpoint is that they are generally made, although I, I do think there are people who are born evil. I mean, I, I just, I definitely do. But in my books, the mess, you know, what I'm saying more is that society warps the individual, the society that we mm -hmm. have, and and all and all through the, these books, um, Empty Mile not so much. That's that's about you know mistakes an individual makes. But Cows High Life and Colony are all about how um, society destroys the individual and and warps mm -hmm. the individual, makes the individual a danger actually to the society that's in. Um, it, it seems like more and more an important message to me as I get older really is because I think that um you know as you get older especially like you talk to other people and they're saying oh that you know this horribly traumatic thing happened to me I don't understand why it happened to me I was doing this mm. and this and this and it's like well why does it happen to anyone it just kind of I wonder if these <laughs> things are how, how are you going to get out of life cleanly you know like well, something yeah, that... <laughs> something traumatic is going to happen to you just because you're here, you know. Um, good things and so happen to I bad people. That... I mean, bad things happen. Yeah, to exactly. People, you know, exactly. And that, that's what I think I find the most cathartic about reading your work is that you, you you find perhaps the most damaging things that can happen to people, and then demonstrate <laughs> that they are they are they're trying to fight against these things that are just too powerful for them. I think you've been doing that since the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I have. I, I, I guess, yeah, you know, I, I think the, the, it was formed, you know, who knows, you know, as individuals where these things are formed. But the, my experience of living in London um, for 15 years in, in the 80s and into the 90s really formed a, a, a lot of my thinking about, about, you know, the individual moving through society and the impact of society on the individual and how things were just you know they just are shit i mean for some people life is appalling and it, and, mm. it really is. and you know you say how do we get out of this cleanly well that's you know that's a lifelong that's your lifelong work isn't it how do we get out of it how do we get out of it how do we how do we end this life how do we get through life and say well yeah i'm happy you know i uh, to me, that's a mystery. I mean, that's an ongoing. I uh, some people listen to this and be like, "What the fuck? What are you talking about?" I'm happy. Well, good luck. That I'm mm -hmm. so pleased for you because you know, that is a fucking gift. But uh, you know, you. It, I, I look. Obviously, I think a lot of it stems and comes from um, your experience as a you know a, as a child. Um, but <laughs> fuck anyway, that's way too complex and too much of a long conversation. <laughs> <laughs> totally. 
going back to the early days of Freud. <laughs> like, yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, no, but no, it's really interesting. Like, I think, I mean, I like, I talk to all kinds of people in my podcast and mm. I've talked to some people who are depressed and so on. And it's, you know, people who aren't depressed are like, what do you have to be depressed about? It's like, oh my mm. God, if you choose to be depressed, any number of things, <laughs> any life can, can yeah. be seen through a depressed lens if you so choose and if you're not seeing it that way it's because i don't know your brain is just designed in such a way that you don't think like that but if you so chose to think that way or if you could not prevent yourself from thinking that way you could drive yourself mad you know well yeah i mean i've been reading you know a little bit recently about the brain and 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 thoughts you know i always thought hey well i think the way i think because that's the right way to think and because that's the truth but more and more i realize and i read about you know the whole brooding patterning cycling thought thing and recently you know just been reading about well you know life is life is the way you think it and it it seems trite it's another one of those you know trotted out aphorisms but I'm I'm coming to believe that because you know I see people who who don't have markedly different circumstances to me, and and yet uh, you know they think what they're doing is fucking great, <laughs> and and I'll yeah. go I'll look at the same thing and I'll go this is fucking awful you know so yeah <laughs> I think it, you know you're talking about how you, you were basically talking about how people you know how you think and and. And it is, but those patterns of thinking are imprinted and, you know, solidified in you so early on, you know, at seven, eight, nine, ten years old. Yeah, that's a done deal. And P- mm. when you, you mentioned people, you know, who aren't depressed and they have this um, inability to understand why anybody would be depressed is why, why would you be depressed? Well, you know, I, I think about people who kill themselves, and um, uh, you know, and you, and you, and and the the trite the trite response to suicide is well, that's a permanent solution to a temporary problem, and you know, why would you do that? Why you know, you know, the mm. damage that's going to inflict on everybody around you, your family, and all the rest of it. Mm. But, but the person who kills himself. It has lost that ability to think in those terms. So when you, mm. when a not happy person says to a depressed person, oh, I don't understand why you're depressed. You know, why don't you just not be depressed? They don't have the tools to do that. They don't have the mechanics. They don't have the brain patterning to do that. Their brain is not wired like that. It's not an option. You know, it's not a choice to be suicidal or to be depressed. You know, it's not something that you can just think yourself out of. What what I think is interesting in your books as well is the sense of failure, because I don't really believe in like living failures or living successes i think i think the jury is out on everyone while you're still here and i also think that um a person is a failure by criteria that they impose upon themselves like almost every time so you are that you're 100 percent right and and that actually you know echoes what i'm you know saying about like some people look at their lives and say they're fantastic some you know and you can be in exactly you yeah. know, very simple circumstances you're right you you are only a failure um by your own lights you know you're 100 percent right yeah and it it really does bear keeping in mind um because 
you know, fuck. <laughs> I I don't know. You know, I look at I, some some people who've done one thing. You know, like one movie or one song or one book, and mm-hmm. they, you know, you can easily imagine that they consider themselves failures, because particularly when you create something, there's, you know, everybody expects you to create another thing and another thing and another thing that's just as good, and and so, you know, maybe these people who've made one great song or one great movie, one great book, consider themselves to be failures and die that way. But, you know, Jesus, if you create one great thing, what a success that is. I mean, that's just, you know, that's that's an amazing thing to do. Yeah. And so you're right. It's a subjective, it's a subjective sort of torture that we apply to ourselves, those of us who do that. Mm, not not um, you or me, of course, but you know, other people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's patterns that you fall into. I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, there's also, I, I think it's kind of covered in your book as well, the notion that, you know, all the money that people have, they earn and then believe themselves to be, let's say you're a millionaire, does that mean you're like a million times better than somebody who has a dollar? Or... Mm. Um, Mm-hmm. It, it, is it just that nobody really understands how money works or how it's made or how to get it and there's an enormous amount of luck involved I don't know um, hmm. I think I mean in my books the people with money have always been you know problematic they've been the bad ones mm-hmm. um, I don't see money as inherently bad I mean having money fuck I'd love to have some I mean I uh, you know and I don't think that you know it's bad I think I, th- I, I think the disparity of wealth is appalling I, you know the fact that somebody can be a billionaire and somebody can be struggling to feed their family I think is disgusting I think that's more what I, where where I've been you know where I've looked for this sort of stuff I see corporations as inherently evil, like, you know, billionaires who live in enormous houses and and hang on to their money and and don't, you know, give money back to the community and don't realise that they don't need these fucking mansions and their aeroplanes. I mean, yeah, I think that's that's pretty evil. My only question for you about cows was, do you get bored of talking about it? No, and I don't get I don't get tired of talking about it, but um, um, you know, it's 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 nice when it's seen within the context of the other books. Um, I love the book, you know, I love I I love all my books, and I you know I read them and I think, wow, really? Did I do that? How the fuck did I do mm-hmm. that? You know, and I I you know I wrote Kels in really appalling circumstances you know i was shit poor i had a horrible job i was you know completely alone in london my girlfriend had gone off for a year and um uh, 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 well actually high life was in even worse circumstances but uh, you know i'd seen a lot of stuff in london that was really you know nasty bad horrible stuff that people lived with with every day, and and that's where cows came out of. So I, I don't know. I don't. I don't get tired of talking about it. But you know, I I kind of hope that 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 
it's it's all it's seen as 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 the beginning of of the you know a, a journey rather than mm-hmm. the only thing yeah but hey fuck sure. i mean you ask Brett Easton Ellis. I mean, he's probably fucking totally sick of talking about less than zero. I mean, everybody, I guess, has it's. I guess it's what your readership is, you know. And 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 so I have a lot of readers who like reading in that that genre, and so they they like the the first two books maybe, and then you know I have other readers who like reading in in the other things and I've been I have to say I think I've been pretty lucky with the response to my books I mean in the early days I wasn't at all I had you know terrible um uh experience with with both publishers and reception but now it, it's pretty cool I think they're seeing pretty well yeah mm-hmm. um here is another one I had for you you, you lived in California, and you, you said you really enjoyed it, which surprises me. You enjoy particularly the way it seems like a... No. It seems like a movie. Um, no, I, I visited California in the 90s. I wouldn't say I lived there. I, and I, I spent some time in Los Angeles, and I drove through the state. And, um, um, uh, and I, I absolutely adored it when I was there. It was about 93. And, um, mm-hmm. uh, and because I... You know, years before then, I had become obsessed with Raymond Chandler and Southern California, the 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 origins of the movie industry. I did lots of reading on that, and um, uh, yeah, that that fascinated me. And the whole Californian, well, let's say Los Angeles, um, Hollywood kind of thing about you know people going there to make it or or struggling to make it and not making it, and the machinations within you know, the, the movie industry. I mean, I loved stuff like The Player and all of those, you know, those movies about Hollywood and the uh, Chandler's books in the 30s and 40s about um, Hollywood. And, yeah, I just, I, I was just there. I, was, I wasn't there for a long time, you know, but 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 it, it matched everything that I dreamt about. Because, um, you know, I, I visit, I'd gone there from, from, you know, a really shitty, depressed England, um, an impoverished England, or I was impoverished. And so, you know, going to California and you walk around Santa Monica and Santa Monica then was beautiful. It's not now, but it was, you know, it was just, it was verdant. It was white walls, you know, red tiles. It was, it was everything, you know, and you'd listen to conversations and you'd stop at traffic lights and hear people's conversations and they were Hollywood conversations, you know, it was like, oh man, is she going to make this deal? Is she going to make that deal? Are we going to do this? Are we going to do it? <laughs> and so, you know, and right down to just getting donuts and seeing cops getting coffee and donuts and all that. It was just to somebody who come from, you know, Australia is growing up in Australia and then living young adulthood in in Britain in a in a you know in a poor on the dole kind of um lifestyle in Britain it was just it was paradise you know I I it was fucking fantastic but what I said later was that when I went back like just a couple of days a couple of years ago I um I really didn't like Los Angeles. It was it, it may well have been where I was staying. I was staying in the Fairfax district. It's it's pretty hip but it's not very pretty 
But also, you know, I went to Santa Monica and that had turned into a complete fucking shithole. I mean, everywhere I went was just fucking ugly. And and so I, yeah, I was, I was, it was a very upsetting experience for me. Um, and, you know, that may just be because I'm older now, you know, um, it may be that, it may be that LA has changed, you know, the whole thing is, you know, the whole dynamic has changed, the place has got more and more and more built up, there's more and more homeless people, um, yeah, I don't know. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think that was, that was everything I'd planned to, to talk about. Uh, what I, just if there's anything you want to let us know about your, what you're working on now. Ah, <laughs> uh, bits and pieces. Um, I just yeah. I did a little. I did a story for an anthology um, called Next Door um, by a British horror writer who is um, having a put out a book to tie in with this film, Matt Shaw. Um, and I'm tinkering with a number of <laughs> a couple of different <laughs> um, stories now, which have you know just keep growing and growing. Um, so you know that's that's really the um, extent of what I can say about that. Yeah, and I'm in the midst of mucking around with a bunch of stuff. I have a yeah a few things I'm working on. A great, you know, we didn't um, we didn't talk about your. Uh... Your experience with screenwriting, but I'm sure that's a whole other hour. <laughs> oh, I'm happy to talk about it if you like. I, um, 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 well, I mean, I've only done a little bit, but <clears throat> I I started off writing screenplays. That's that's the first long form writing that I did. It was the first writing that I did. In fact, um, I you know um, I did a my my obsession with California and Los Angeles and Hollywood, um, you know, naturally led to screenwriting. And while I was at college, I hadn't figured out how to write, and I was at university um, and uh, writing all these essays, and I went and did a uh, screenwriting course, uh, not in college, somewhere else. And I um, and, uh, had a cartoonist friend um, who wanted to, you know, said, hey, let's do a screenplay of my sort of comic strip characters so uh that's how i began writing and um, we wrote um the screenplay called pick and jube and then i wrote another one after that and then it was after that, that i wrote cows because i i really was too lazy i think to master the out of screen writing and and also being in britain I, in those days pre-internet or well it wasn't lit yeah i guess it was pre-internet um you know you felt a long 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 way away from um, Hollywood, and you kind of needed to be there, I guess, at that point to to pursue it. Um, so I segued into uh, I went into novels because I had more freedom. But um, when I was living in New Zealand, they had a cool thing called the Short Film Fund that was uh, done by the New Zealand um, Film I don't know Institute or something, and um, mm -hmm. and I wrote a, a screenplay called Rock about a, a little boy. Um, who was abused at home and has a pet rock and seeks to become like a rock. It was completely ruined by the process of both the producer and the director. But, um, uh, you know, it got made and it got shown on TV and it got shown in, you know, film festivals and all the rest of it. But it, it was um, a very upsetting experience for me because they basically, you know, forced me to rewrite this fucking 14 page script for, for an entire year and then shot it and you know completely neutered it um 
but uh, you know, I, I guess I shouldn't complain. The film got funded and the film got shot. The other film that um, was a much more pleasant experience was um, Dog by a, um, a guy called Paul Kwiatkowski, who's a, a, a polymath writer, um, podcaster, and many other things. And um, he got in touch with me after eating cows and asked me to write him a screenplay. He actually paid me for it, which is very, very nice of him. And um, <clears throat> he, he, shot, he shot this, uh, this about 25-minute film called Dog. Um, and did a superb job with it. It's, um, it was a, a, a very, very satisfying experience, a very, very pleasant experience. And Paul Kwiatkowski's um, bears more of a mention for a couple of books that he's done. Um, and Every Day Was Overcast. Um, it was really quite a groundbreaking book. You should check it out. And another mm -hmm. one called Ghost Guest. Um, very, very good books indeed. So there, that's the screenwriting that I've done. And then, you know, I, I have a friend in, in Hollywood who's a screenwriter, Tony Herbert, and then periodically gets in touch with me <laughs> to, to mm -hmm. try and spruik one, one book or another in Hollywood. Nothing, you know, they've been optioned a few times, but um, that nothing's, nothing's really gone. And I wrote, you know, I wrote a screenplay of High Life and... Um, and that didn't, you know, I I just wrote it really for um, one of the other directors who was interested in it, but didn't didn't pick it up and go with it. So, yeah, you know, it's it's something that I'd really like to do. But, you know, I look at, I mean, TV is a new medium now, right? So, I mean, these amazing amazing series that you get on TV now, I think, uh, you know, just really. That's that's where the banner is. That's that's who's picked it up and run with it. It's not not it's not movies anymore. It's TV, and I I just mm. wonder how the fuck people write this stuff. You know, it's, I just look at it and go, wow, how do you do that? That's so clever. How how can you fucking conceptualize this stuff across like twelve hours or eight hours? And how does that all yeah. get put together? I'd love to go to a writing, you know, to be in a writing room and be with these mm. writers and see what their process is. I mean, it is. It must. Be. I'm sure they use like shitloads of software, and it's all like corporatized and all the rest of it. But holy shit, some of this stuff's been great. You know, I never used to watch mm -hmm. TV, but um, yeah, some of the stuff now is great. Anything in particular you've been enjoying? Um, well, Ozark. I watched Ozark re oh, recently, yeah. and I have to say, gone too far. I, you know, I fucking hated both uh -huh. of them. The, the man and the woman to the point where I didn't give a shit about them anymore. They would, they had just, <laughs> they had pushed them to be such, he was so divorced from really caring about anyone else. And she is so horrible, <laughs> but, it, but you know, it's yeah. a fabulous show. It really is a fabulous show. Um, oh fuck. I don't know. I mean, there's been some really great ones. I, I'll think of them all as soon as I hang up from you. I'm, I'm watching little fires everywhere at the moment. And that's not usually what I'd be drawn to, but I'm, I, I I found it really pretty great. And I, you know, I haven't read the book or anything, but it's very cool the way they, they subvert or twist or stump your expectations pretty much at every, every move. Mm. Um, I, but yeah, sorry. Oh, no, sorry. I was just going to say, I'm going to bet that the series in that case is better than the book. Because uh, I, 
so I attempted the book, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't bring it in there. <laughs> I was like thinking, man, if the book's as good as this, oh, fucking hell, there's no hope, you know. But yeah, I, don't I, worry. It isn't. <laughs> I think Dexter was like that, right? Do you, did you watch Dexter? And do you, you, oh, Dexter oh, was oh, great, yeah. Dexter was fabulous, but the books weren't as good as Dexter as the TV. You know, there's very few things which come off better than the books, but, you know, Dexter, I think it was definitely better than the books. And, and of course, I like Breaking Bad. I love Breaking Bad. I wish I could think of something more recent because I, I have watched a few things recently that I've really dug. But um, anyway, I mean, if you pick okay. something nice and gritty, I've probably seen it and, and, and loved it. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. See, I have... Uh... I have a um, filmmaking club here in Stavanger, Norway. Oh, um, that we like. Yeah, it's great fun. We make films with the resources that we have. So we started doing it on just iPhones, and then I eventually invested in a camera, and we're doing stuff. Oh, oh anyway, I'm so jealous. It's super, that sounds fantastic. It's so much fun, and like the thing is, it's super. There's so many interesting rural areas here in Norway. So if you ever feel like giving us permission to make cows with like people in cow costumes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's funny because <laughs> go go for it. I don't mind. <laughs> um, I, it's it's funny because you know people often have well, High Life has been the book that most people have talked about making a film out of. Um, Empty Mile was scouted early on, but didn't go ahead. And um, um, uh, but I think now you know you could make cows. The CGI, the the you know the computer graphics are now so good and so cheap or cheap enough mm. that you can actually make it, you know, but, um, you want to, you want to do a down and dirty house with people in costumes. <laughs> I think I'd probably say yes. You know, okay. I'm taking you up on that. Um, All right, good. Yeah, I was envisioned it as a sort of like low budget John Waters, like early John Waters thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you know, you can have your own view of it. I mean, uh, me, I, I'm, I'm like a high production value guy. I, I like, you know, I, I like really well made stuff. But no, man, don't, don't let me put you off. That, that's cool. Let's, we'll take that offline and talk about it. I'm, I'm totally down with that. Don't worry about it. Uh, that, that could be fantastic. Really fun. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll do lunch. <laughs> we'll, yeah, do we'll do a production lunch. lunch. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, what are you doing with the rest of your evening? Uh, well, you know, it's it, it is now dark here. Um, I'm just it's a Sunday night, so I'm just going to be you know just kicking back, watching TV, and uh, doing nothing else really. Waiting for Monday morning when I have to log on and be a worker. And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just the usual Very nice. Sunday night chilled night. Yeah. Been lovely talking with you, Leo. Um, very interesting. I really enjoyed talking to you. It's been um, a very pleasant experience. I uh, let's stay in touch. Yeah, absolutely. You know, just before uh, I got on Skype, I was worried I couldn't find you, so I sent you a friend request on Facebook. Oh, cool. Uh, All right. Yeah. So okay. In case we could do Messenger. Oh, oh. I will say that. I will say yes to that. <laughs> Brilliant. Yes, we'll keep in touch. It's been lovely talking to you. Awesome, mate. Love you. All right. Have a lovely day. All right, see ya. Bye-bye. Well, everyone, that's a Losing the Plot exclusive. If you heard it here first, how's the movie confirmed? Um, I had a lovely chat with Matthew. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. 
thank you for joining me as always. If you have anything you want to tell me about the show, if you want to be on the show yourself, uh, whatever it is, you can always get in touch with me using losingtheplotpodcast at gmail.com. And I look forward to hearing from you. Uh, But that's all from me for this episode. So until next time, bye bye.